I'll invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, We have spent the last couple of Sundays, at least the last couple of Sundays we were in Genesis, looking at uh, this covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, and indeed he made it with Noah and with all of creation and all of the descendants that would come from Noah. And now as humanity begins something of a fresh start after the flood, uh, we see in our text this afternoon a, a very serious stumbling out of the gate, which results then in a prophecy made by Noah that has very far-reaching implications. So we're going to begin by reading Genesis 9, verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So with the covenant being made between God and Noah and all of creation... It's time now in the book of Genesis to get on with things, to carry on, to repopulate, and so on. And it's interesting that this, then, is the next story that we have of all of the things that, we, that, that went on that would have occurred. We're told 350 years before Noah would die. This is the only other story we have about Noah. And again, it's similar to Genesis chapter 3. At the outset here of a fresh start, we have an account of sin that brings significant ramifications for the story that's ahead. There are parallels in our text that we just read to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, if we've been tracking with Genesis so far and with what God has said even after the floodwaters and what he has said to Noah, then we should not be surprised to discover a a story involving sinfulness. God has said, even after the flood, that the the intent of man's heart is still evil. And so we should expect moving forward, we're still going to find sin in man. But again, of all the things that Moses could have focused on, here we are, this story, this rather unseemly account, and at times even a little bit cryptic, story involving Noah and all three of his sons. And of course, it's not a very flattering story about Noah. 
This communicates to us in no uncertain terms that life under the Noahic covenant is still dominated by sin and man is still in need of redemption. Again, the, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God has promised right after the fall there is going to be a, an offspring of the woman who is going to one day come and, 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 and crush the head of the serpent, bruise the serpent's head. This is a promise about Christ, a promise about the Redeemer who would come. We see sin spread across all of humanity. And in the flood, we see just how devastating sin was and its effect upon man and God's judgment upon that flood or upon that, that man, man and, and man's sinfulness. And yet we see as the flood subsides, God promises he's never going to do that again. That is not the answer that he's going to give to this right now. If he were to flood the earth because of sinfulness, if that was his answer, you'd have to do it continually all the time because he said the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Man is still sinful. Man is still in need of redemption. And this story not only reveals this very clearly to us, it also reveals to us how this redemption would play out. As again, the book of Genesis begins to narrow in its focus upon this particular family line through whom God would send the Redeemer. So let's get into this a little more. There's two points to our outline this afternoon. The first one is under the Noahic covenant, life is still dominated by sin. I mentioned that there are echoes here of the Garden of Eden in this account. So, for example, we have sin that's involving fruit. We have nakedness and shame. We have a covering of that nakedness. We even have a curse that's pronounced. And so there are a number of conceptual and even grammatical parallels to Genesis chapter 3. We have different people, we have a new beginning, but we still have the same problem of sin. So let's look again at verse 18 here. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That little remark is preparing us for what is to come. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So this, these two verses serve as a transition and a prologue to our section that we're looking at today. The flood is over, the covenant has been made with Noah, and now here's a summary statement that mankind, as we know it now, descends ultimately from these three sons of Noah. Again, we've, we've talked about some of the uh, uh, challenges to uh, Genesis being treated as history very clearly. Uh, the author of Genesis, Moses here, is presenting this to us as history, or this sentence wouldn't make any sense. From these three, spread out all the people that currently live, is what he said as, he's, as he was writing this, as, as Moses was still alive. So this is a, a bit of a, a transition and a prologue to the section we're looking at. Then in verse 20 it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Again, we have seen that the flood did not fix the problem of the heart of man, that sin is a problem within man's fallen nature, on man's heart. 
And when we recall that God made that declaration back in chapter 8, verse 21, that's a hint to us if we were just reading Genesis and we've never read the Bible and we don't know what is yet to come. It is a hint. It prepares us for what we're going to see. Namely, we're going to see sin again before this thing's through. It prepares us for that. And so when we get here to chapter 9 and we read this account and it's a little bizarre and we see this sinfulness, on the one hand, it really shouldn't be shocking to us. We're prepared for this. But on the other hand, so far, if we think of Noah and all that we've been told about Noah, we've really only been told that Noah was an upright man. He's a righteous man. He walked with God. He was a man of faith. He believed God. And he did the things that God told him to do, even when it seemed crazy. For example, obviously, he built this massive ark, which would have seemed nuts to his neighbors. It wasn't any less weird just because it was a long time ago than it would be today if God said to you to build something like that. Although he has said he won't flood the earth again. So if you hear a voice telling you to do that, it's not right. But my point is, it seemed crazy to his neighbors. And yet... Noah did it because he believed God. This is the kind of man he is. This is the kind of man he was. He walked with God, we're told. Even that kind of language is not used commonly in the Old Testament. It's used of Enoch and of Noah. He is a man of faith. And so when we get to this section then, it is a little bit surprising that we read this account. This degrading activity out of Noah. That after such a great deliverance, Why is Moses telling us this story of all the things to tell us? And we're surprised to read of Noah behaving in this way. And so we're told here, after the flood, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He's working the land. This is part of what God had directed him to do. And he plants a vineyard. In time, he reaps of the harvest and he makes wine out of it. And then we're told he gets drunk from it. And he passes out naked in his tent. And the wording of it there suggests that he uncovered himself. He exposed himself. But he's not in his right frame. He's drunk. This is telling us this is some kind of stupor he was in. And he winds up in this condition, uncovered himself, and lays there in his tent, passed out or asleep. Certainly, this is very unbecoming of the older man Noah, for a man who was trusting in the Lord, a man who was said to be a righteous man in his generation. His tent, obviously here, is not entirely private either. This isn't a completely public exposing of himself. But obviously, his son is going to walk in on him. Perhaps it's some family dwelling of some kind. His son ends up in there and sees this. Now, if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, when sin first enters into the world, shame at our nakedness is appropriate in light of sin. That it signifies our spiritual nakedness before Almighty God. And we talked about that back when Adam and Eve, we looked at Adam and Eve and their sin. When shame at nakedness, when modesty When this is removed from a person, it is not a good thing, whether it's some intentional act or whether it's through drunkenness as it was here for Noah. We are obviously reminded here that if Noah 
A man who walked with God closely and received such wonderful graces and blessings from God. That if he could sin, indeed all of us can and indeed do sin. Noah was a man of faith. Again, he'd received much blessing, but his guard is down here. And it brings reproach upon himself, upon his family, and upon his God. And so we see here, sin is still reigning in the world. And it is evident even in Noah himself. Now before we move on to Ham, Noah's son Ham and his sin, it's worth just considering the specific sin here that is talked about, the sin of drunkenness. The Bible has quite a bit to say about this. Now wine is spoken of in the Bible as a gift to man. Psalm 104, verse 14 says, praising God, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. These are good gifts that God has given to man. This is what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 104, 15. The scriptures do not demand total abstinence from wine. We think of our Lord himself, Jesus, turned water into wine in John chapter 2. Wine is a good gift given to man from God. But there are also plenty of many warnings in scripture as well about wine. Uh, This very story that we're looking at of Noah is itself one of those places we would turn to to be warned of its effects. Man has the tendency to abuse the good gifts of God, whatever they may be. Uh, John Calvin famously called the, the human heart an idol factory. We are very good at taking almost anything and turning it into some sort of idol, something that we live for and bow down to. Abusing good things even that God would give to us. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. One can be led astray by wine, and it is the fool who is. Wisdom is required with such gift. And so for this reason, there are Christians who have different practices when it comes to wine. Total abstinence is a perfectly valid Christian practice. Some people seeking to be wise, who do not trust themselves, want nothing to do with it. And for some, that may well be the only wise position for them to take. Others, perhaps not having the same temptation or same history with the substance, can enjoy it in moderation. And this too is valid. But of course, wisdom is always to be employed. The scriptures urge us to wisdom and to carefulness. There are some people who've tried to argue that wine in the Bible, like in John chapter 2, for example, is not actually alcoholic. And I just find that not at all persuasive. Even in John chapter 2 itself, it's pretty clear that it, it does contain some alcohol. So again, it's, not, it's, it's wisdom that is urged upon man and carefulness. 
So we see here, sin is still present on this side of the flood. It affects even Noah, who is drunk, unclothed in his tent. But we also see, of course, sin in his son Ham. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on, their, on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. What in the world is this? So the the actual event of what takes place in verses 22 and 23 seems relatively straightforward. But then Noah's response seems perhaps maybe a little bit, at first at least, a little over the top. Why is he issuing a curse because of this? Uh, Let alone it's a curse upon Canaan, Ham's son, not even Ham himself. And so this tends to raise questions then about what's really going on here. For starters, what exactly is Ham's sin? What exactly has he done wrong? So partly because of uh, Noah's very strong response to this and the curse that's pronounced, many people read this phrase that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. They read that as a euphemism for some unseemly act that Ham performs. That there was some sort of horrific sexual act that occurred here, Uh, something too shameful or embarrassing to say directly. And so this euphemistic phrase is is given here. And the Bible does use a similar expression elsewhere as a euphemism to uncover the nakedness of another in Leviticus 18 means to have relations with that person's spouse, to use another euphemism that we're familiar with. And so some see that as the sin that Ham has committed here, or something like that. However, it's not the same expression. Uh, In in Leviticus 18, it it uses the phrase to uncover the nakedness, whereas here Noah uncovers himself in his drunken stupor, and Canaan saw the nakedness. So it's a different phrase. Uh, Further, what Shem and Japheth do in honoring their father doesn't really fit, I don't think, if this is supposed to be a euphemism. They seem to very literally cover his nakedness with a blanket. So then, what is it that Ham has done wrong here? He stumbles upon this scene. He can't necessarily help that. He saw this. What's what's gone wrong here? I think it's better to understand this sin to ultimately be Ham's dishonoring of his father. He evidences, I think it's implied here, that he evidences a disdain and a disrespect for his father. Perhaps even reveling in his father's state of sin. Rather than covering his father's shame and respect and then perhaps speaking to his father, the next possible opportunity about this, to confront him about it. Rather, he he goes out and he announces this thing to others. He holds his father up to further mockery and derision. He seeks to bring dishonor upon his father, holding him to open shame. James Montgomery Boyce was a a preacher, and he's a commentary on Genesis. He says that it may well have been a repudiation 
of his father's religion, even. And then Boyce goes on to quote from another writer who says the following, Ham not merely dishonored Noah as a parent, but disliked him as a preacher of righteousness. And that's just a, that's a phrase about Noah. He was a herald of righteousness that Peter uses in 2 Peter 2.5. So let's continue with the quote. It says, Hence, Ham's satisfaction, his irrepressible joy when he caught the patriarch in such a state of degradation. Ah, he has found that the godly man is no better than his neighbors. He has got behind the scenes. He has made a notable discovery. And now he cannot contain himself. Forth he rushes, all hot and impatient, to publish the news so welcome to himself. That Ham is an ungodly individual seems to be a clear implication in this section. And it is not uncommon for the ungodly to love to sing of the sins of God's people. When they discover those who would take the name of the Lord, who act in some, unreproach- or some, some reproachable manner, to publish it for everyone to see. To bring reproach upon that individual and their God as well. This is part of the scandal of when Christians do act worldly. The ungodly then feel better about themselves. That they publish the faults far and wide of the Lord's people. We will get to the curse in, in a moment. But some might find this to be a sin that's not really maybe still that big of a deal to warrant being cursed for it. However, I, th- I think it's fair to say that we tend to underestimate how evil it is to dishonor parents. Sin in general, but to dishonor parents. It is a wicked thing at any age. It's made it into the Ten Commandments. Kids, you need to hear that. You need to understand that. It's not even just do the things they say, but it's to honor your father and mother. You could technically do the thing they tell you to do, but do it in a very dishonoring manner. And God calls this sin. And here we even have a grown man with full knowledge of what he's doing, publishing, blasting his father's sin out there, perhaps with gleeful delight at his fall. There were cases in the Old Testament where rebellious children could be put to death under the Mosaic law if they spurned their parents' discipline and proved to be gluttons or drunkards. Deuteronomy 21 says it. Now that implies they're a little older, But ask yourself, in light of these things, if God takes this seriously. Dishonoring parents is not cute. Again, children, you need to understand this. But also parents, you need to understand this as well. That you might teach your kids this. If you allow their dishonor of you to go without comment or discipline, it is not loving and it does not teach them the truth of God. We, we understand if they lie to us, that's a big deal. If they break one of the other Ten Commandments, we would certainly 
address that. But so too dishonoring is. Obviously these things are not taught in a day, but we must communicate the seriousness of this to our children. And remember this even as we grow older and deal with our own parents. In verse 23, we're told that Shem and Japheth took a garment and without looking at their father, walked backwards and covered him up. They do him a great honor here, ensuring he is not held open to further reproach from any who might see him. They know this is shameful behavior by their father. I don't think they're just trying to make, don't let anybody ever know that he sinned. Obviously, the story has been passed down to us. But they're not out to exploit him over it. They're not celebrating it. They're not making fun of it or just laughing about it or making light. They deal with it in a way that upholds their father's honor and dignity. Like it's an example of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4 about love covering a multitude of sins. This seems to be what the brothers are doing here. So I ask us, when you see a brother or sister in sin, what is your instinct? The godly one is to go to that brother and sister. The godly instinct is to deal with that quietly. Or perhaps in love, you may cover that sin. You may give them the benefit of the doubt. You may say, yes, he or she said that thing and it seemed harsh or unloving or what have you to me. But I know that they are having a rough day. They're not typically like that. The Lord's working in them. I, it's not, I don't have to make a big deal of it. I can let this go and move on and love for them and in trust of the Lord. That would be to cover it and move on, not make a big deal of it. But perhaps you go a different direction. You need to say something. I need to tell somebody. I saw them do this thing. Make it public, broadcast it in order to bring that individual into greater reproach, bring shame upon them. If you rejoice in their sins, you feel better about yourself. That is itself sin, as is gossip about it. Perhaps it is the kind of sin you, you do need to go to that individual to talk about. But again, that godly instinct is to go to them. Jesus himself has instructed us in as much in Matthew 18. Now, to be clear, there are times and there are places where sin is to be publicly addressed and even rebuked. Uh, Paul says as much about particular sins of elders to be rebuked publicly that everybody might fear. There's a time and a place for that. Matthew 18 also has a time and a place to bring sins into public and so on. But even then, there's not to be gossip and there's not to be a celebrating about it. Did you hear what they did or what have you? And further, if some sort of sin was a criminal act, this is not saying just, just shove it under the rug and pretend it never happened. That's not what this is saying. Ham should have covered his father and he should have addressed his father's sin with him at the next opportunity that he had. Not go out and start telling others. And so both in Noah and in his son Ham, we see that sin is still very much dominant. Even within this family, who has so miraculously been saved by God through the flood. So sin is still dominant here. The second point of our outline, under the Noahic covenant, God's plan of redemption marches on. God's plan of redemption continues. 
In verse 24, we read, When Noah awoke from his wine, that is when he sobered up, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, we don't know how he knew, perhaps, well, obviously somebody told him, maybe Shem or Japheth went to their father to explain things, to talk to him about it, maybe addressing his sin even. We don't know. But when he knew, he said, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Again, there are questions about this curse. Why such a strong response to this? And why curse Canaan and not Ham? First off, if, again, pronouncing a curse for dishonoring a parent just seems way too harsh, we do see later, very explicitly, when the nation of Israel would have to rehearse the covenant blessings and curses on the mountains when they would go into the land of Canaan. We read in Deuteronomy 27, 16, the part of the assembly was to say, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. It wasn't too strong there. But also I'm inclined to view this cursing and the blessing that we read in verses 24 to 27 as prophecy from Noah. That is, based on this event, Noah is not merely throwing out some sort of wish that he has because of some personal offense that his son has done to him, but he's prophesying what will be with regard to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So then this is a spirit-inspired pronouncement, not simply a reaction of an angry man here. As for why Canaan, who is one of Ham's sons, likely the youngest son, why it's aimed at him, well, it isn't explicitly stated why here. One old Jewish tradition speculates that Canaan was actually the one who discovered Noah in the tent and then went out and told his father Ham. We can't actually know that. It doesn't say that. Some have said that by limiting the curse to Canaan, God shows restraint against Ham. God doesn't simply curse all of Ham's descendants, Ham and his family, as he does in other places. So we might think of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 33, that there's not going to be a man in your household on account of your sins. And we see a similar thing in other places as well. What we may say with certainty is that Canaan and all of his offspring were not innocent men, merely condemned on account of Ham's actions. The Canaanites were under a curse, but they also freely engaged in much wickedness, which we read of later in the Bible, the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan's offsprings and all of their wickedness. Moreover, God gave much time before this curse even came upon them. Sometimes people read parts of the Bible like this, as if God is saying that even though Canaan and his offspring are going to beg me for mercy, even though they'll be totally innocent of anything, I'm just going to withhold it from them. I simply will not forgive them. We imagine a completely innocent people coming under God's wrath. This is not how it is. It's never that way. Man always does 
ultimately what man wants to do. God is not here or at any time making anyone do evil by force. In God's purposes of election, God passed over Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, and he curses them in their sin. Canaan and his offspring would be wicked men. His offspring would be wicked like their father Canaan, like their father Ham. And God's purposes for them, at least in large part, will ultimately not be mercy, but judgment. Now there were, we can think of individual exceptions to that. Think of Rahab in Jericho, who received great mercy from the Lord. But on the whole... Canaan's descendants were vessels for destruction. For the Israelites who would read this book of Moses, Genesis, first in the wilderness, this would have obvious implications for them and their upcoming conquest of Canaan. As Joshua would lead the armies of Israel into the land many years after this pronouncement, they would be fulfilling this prophecy that Noah made. The Canaanites were consigned to destruction or to servitude to Israel, who were the descendants of Shem. The prophecy continues here in verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Here Noah blesses the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Shem, Shem is a man of like faith to Noah. His God is the Lord. And while this blessing is actually pronounced upon the Lord, blessed be the Lord, it is clearly also a blessing upon Shem, who was an instrument of God's blessing to Noah as Shem covered Noah. And again, it is prophesied here that Canaan will be his servant. And this we again see in the conquest of Canaan as the people of Israel would descend from Shem. And so Canaan would indeed be in servitude to them. But what this also means is that not only does Israel descend from Shem, but the promised line of the Redeemer is also going to come through Shem. If you remember, it's been several weeks since we talked about this, but we divide up the book of Genesis. We see that there are 10 sections that begin with this phrase, these are the generations of. And it shows us that Genesis is concerned with a particular family line. And it begins, as I said earlier, this promise of an offspring who's going to come and reverse this curse that has fallen upon man because of sin. And in these generations of sections, the the focus begins to narrow as the storyline advances. And Genesis' focus is not merely on humanity in general, but of a very particular family and a particular family line. And the particular section that we're looking at began back in chapter 6 and verse 9. And it is now coming to an end here at the end of chapter 9. In this section, we see the population of man reduced to one man and to his family, Noah and his family. But it is now about to expand again as they would go forth and multiply, be fruitful. 
But the focus of Genesis will continue to narrow in on a particular line. And that line is here revealed to us to be through Shem. Not through Ham and not through Japheth, but through Shem. And this is indeed what we will see in the weeks ahead as we continue through this. God also blesses Japheth here in verse 27. He says, may God enlarge Japheth. This is a a play on words, a play on his name, the name Japheth. In Hebrew, sounds like the word for enlarge here. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The phrase to dwell in the tents of Shem reveals that Japheth will come to receive benefit from the blessing of Shem. In his commentary, a man by the name of Derek Kidner writes, The fulfillment of the words, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, is sought almost in vain in the Old Testament. That is, if you look through the Old Testament to see where would the descendants of Japheth be lodging in the tents of Shem, how would we find that in any way? He's saying you'll find it, you'll look in vain in the Old Testament. We don't see it. He continues. But fulfillment leaps to the eye in the New Testament in the ingathering of the Gentiles, predominantly from the West. So we'll see next week when we get into chapter 10. Japheth's descendants, we are told, settled on the coastlands, that is, the coast of the Mediterranean. And when we get to the New Testament, what do we see as the gospel advances? We see it primarily advancing around the Mediterranean. The gospel advances in that region in Acts. And the Gentiles, offspring of Japheth, come to receive the blessing of salvation that came through Shem's line. A.W. Pink says this. It's a bit of a longer quote, but I think it's, it's good and helpful. He says, Japheth was to come under the divine protection and be admitted to the blessings which were the peculiar but not exclusive portion of Shem. Throwing the light of the New Testament upon this ancient prophecy, we find it clearly announced that it was through the line of Shem that the gifts of grace and the blessings of salvation were more immediately to flow. Yet... So far from them being confined unto that section of the human family, the larger portion of it, Japheth, would also share in their good. In the language of the New Testament, this is only another way of saying that from the Jews would salvation flow forth unto the Gentiles. I think that's correct. That is where this prophecy finds its fulfillment, that that is what this is speaking of. This Sad and maybe strange occasion of Noah's sin and Ham's sinful response. And then along with the honorable actions of Shem and and Japheth, they occasion this prophecy that has everything to do with the promise of God sending a redeemer that we first saw in chapter 3, verse 15. Why this story of all the stories? Because it is an occasion in which this prophecy is made about the very point of the book of Genesis and the point of the scriptures of a whole. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come from the line of Shem and he's going to be a blessing not only to those people, but to Japheth's offspring as well. The story is again narrowing in, but revealing to us that the blessing would not be limited to that one family line, but would flow forth to all the nations of the earth. 
Yeah, that's not a surprise to us. It shouldn't be when we come to the great commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's not unforeseen. Whoa, this is different. It's the very purpose to which all of this is driving. The inclusion of Gentiles in the blessing of Jesus Christ was always the plan. The problem of sin, as we have seen, is a universal one. It's a humankind problem that we've inherited from Adam. And it continues this very day as we gather now. There is one solution, Scripture tells us, and one solution only, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the church's peculiar task to take this good news then to the fallen descendants of Noah across the globe, wherever we might find them, and to preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And to call Gentiles to faith in Christ Jesus, to turn from idols, vain idols, to the living God. To be reconciled to Almighty God, our Creator, through faith in Jesus Christ. Sin continues everywhere after the fall. Death continues to reign through that sin, as Paul says in Romans 5. The creation order lies under the wrath of God because of this, condemned to judgment. It is the city of destruction, as Bunyan famously put it in Pilgrim's Progress. But Christ has come, and he has offered his own life's blood as a ransom for doomed sinners. There is a celestial city, a heavenly kingdom into which God calls sinners graciously. And so the news goes forth, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation with Almighty God, though you are a sinner, and God commands all men and women everywhere to repent of your sin, to acknowledge you are sinful before God, and you fall short of His holiness. You have sinned in mind, in your thoughts, in your deeds, in your actions, you've loved your sin, you've thought low of God Almighty, been dismissive of Him, to confess this to God. And to place your sole hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says that if you do this, you look away from your sin, your own efforts at becoming better or whatever it might be. Look away from all else. Place your faith in Christ Jesus who died for sinners. Who satisfies God's wrath against sinners by dying in our place. If you believe in him, you will be saved. You will be covered in his righteousness, forgiven of your sins, made a son of God and an heir of eternity, granted eternal life. The seed of all of that is right here in Genesis, right here in the passage we're looking at, in this prophecy from Noah. It's why this story gets added, why it's here, of all the things that could have been said. Of Noah's 350 years, this stands out because of the prophecy that arose from this event. Sin abounds, but God's plan of redemption carries on. His purpose in it will stand. And we continue to confess this truth. We see sin everywhere. We see it in our nation. We see it in our neighbors. And we see it in our own hearts. Noah is not the only 
man who trusted God, who was then a sinner. We are all drunken Noahs, naked and shamed. And so it is that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has pitied us and who covers us with his blood and righteousness. The section comes to a close here in verse 28. It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Noah's life was remarkable. There was a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment and of the Redeemer to come. But Noah did not bring about the ultimate rest. Remember, he was named that in hope that perhaps this one will bring us rest from the work of our hands. This one might bring us rest from the curse that we labor under. Noah walked with God but was still a sinner in need of redemption. It is ultimately Christ Jesus to whom this points forward. The eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. It is ultimately Him who gives rest from the power and the punishment of sin. Believe upon Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how easily we turn our nose up when we hear about the sins of others, including the sins of Noah. We roll our eyes, we shake our heads. But Father, when we are thinking rightly, we understand that we are sinners. We are no better. In fact, if anyone knew the true depths of our sinfulness, we would not want to go out into public. Father, as your Apostle Paul said as well, he, he was the chief of sinners. He knew his heart. He knew the sins he had committed. And each one of us can make that declaration if we are dealing honest with you and before you. And so, Father, we thank you that you purposed to send your Son to die for sinners. You could have simply judged the earth. You could simply have wiped us out. But you have purposes to redeem a people for yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So we praise you that by believing in Christ, we can likewise receive this wonderful gift. Father, forgive us where we think too lightly of this blessing. That we would be forgiven of our sins. Father, help us to be more courageous to share this good news with those around us. Father, it is the only hope, we know this, the only hope for a man or a woman, young or old, to stand before you one day. In our own sins, we will be banished, we will be judged for eternity. But with Christ Jesus covering us with his blood and righteousness, we will be welcomed in. Father, we thank you. This is a gift you graciously give, that we receive it by believing that all of our best efforts are not to pay you for this gift. Father, we can do nothing. We are empty-handed beggars. And so we praise you that you are indeed gracious, truly so. Father, we pray that you would 
do your good work in our hearts of sanctification, that we might long to seek you, to know you more, to put off sin, to to war against our own sins and our own idols, that that would be a concern of ours more than even the sins of those around us. Father, make us a wise people. Renew us in every way, we pray. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.